Today I got a complaint regarding, as usual, the pace of the show and the material I cover. I was accused of padding my hours through speculation, and I think that complaint might be because there's a bit of confusion regarding what the BHP is. So if you don't mind, I'd like to drop the curtain and quickly explain what the BHP is and isn't. This is not a casual overview of British history. The conversational tone that I take might make you think this is a light lesson, but in actual fact, I'm teaching you material that you wouldn't encounter unless you took a graduate level course. It's why I'm not flinching from the so-called Dark Ages, and instead I'm giving you a detailed analysis of that period. By the time you're done with the over 600 years of history between the fall of the Western Empire and the Norman Conquest, you'll have a deep level of knowledge of where much of modern British culture comes from. The information you're getting is comprehensive, and typically it's not available unless you love reading scholarly articles and analyzing medieval legal documents, because that's where it comes from. So, despite the fact that I'm talking to you like we're sharing a pint at the local pub, I'm covering some heavy stuff. I try and make it fun and interesting, but you should know that I'm talking to you like you're smart enough to handle the academic debates over the sheer level of uncertainty during this era. Which is why the current episodes are filled with theories of what might have happened, and why you're familiar with me discussing several academic notions, and then ending with, but ultimately we just don't know. And that's a good thing. It's not a bug in the show, it's an intended feature. It's all part of the plan, because here's the truth of it. I don't think you're stupid. Modern Western education has all but eliminated critical thinking from the curriculum, and television channels like the History Channel think we're fools who want to be spoon-fed simple stories regardless of whether or not they're accurate. But I think they're wrong. I think we're smarter than that. Not only that, but I think you can be entertained while also exploring shadowed passages, diving into multiple theories, and learning of the mystery that is our past. I think we're intelligent enough for that. And as a welcome benefit, we're also proving that critical thinking is something that can be taught, is useful, and is actually fun. Figuring out whether or not a source is reliable is one of the best parts of learning. And we know this intrinsically. Can you imagine how much it would have sucked if someone spoiled Fight Club, or The Usual Suspects, or The Crying Game? We like mysteries. We like uncertainty. And while many history shows will shy away from it, the BHP thrives on it. And I trust you to be sharp enough to enjoy thinking these things through. But that being said, that level of trust is part of why this show isn't for everyone. Some people like certainty and want a simple narrative to follow. And so the BHP probably isn't for them. Though I would hasten to add that history in general might not be for them either because any source that gives you a sense of certainty regarding history is probably irresponsible. Even modern history is heavily debated and nuanced. Frankly, simple narratives are a sign that you're being taught myths. So, listener beware. But my guess is that you like nuance and mystery, and that you really want to learn about a heavily neglected area of history. And that's where the BHP shines. I'm not padding. I'm not meandering. I'm teaching. The length and detail isn't a bug. It's a feature. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 153, an offer you can't refuse. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. 
If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Karen, Emma, and Daryl for contributing already. As you might have guessed, today we're talking mostly about Afa. But before we get into some of the cool things that were going on during Afa's reign, let's start with something shady. So as you might remember, Afa's predecessor, Aethelbald, was running around with nuns and presumably having children with them. Because nuns were often noble daughters, these kids would have been the offspring of both the former king and part of various noble families. And don't forget that being a royal child from within a consecrated marriage was not a requirement of Mercia. Your parents didn't need to be married. The blood was what mattered, not the vows. Consequently, Offa was up to his eyeballs with potential claimants to the throne. While his throne was relatively secure by this point, it really was not clear what would happen when he died. That was a problem for the king, since he wanted his son to succeed, not some kid from Aethelbald's Night of Passion in the nunnery. And Offa knew from personal experience the consequences of an unclear line of succession. He had to fight a civil war because of one, and then spent years reestablishing his dominance in Mercia, and because of all that uncertainty, he saw the power of Mercia collapse. Succession crises are awful, and they really should be avoided if at all possible. And so that brings us to what we read in later records. We're told of Offa's brutality, and of how much blood he shed to ensure that his son would inherit the throne. And that suggests that at this point in the story, Offa was trimming the family tree as fast as he could, on top of fighting his rivals to the west, and jockeying for power with Wessex. And of course, giving Canterbury the stink eye. Now, based upon the state of the Mercian royal dynasty after Offa's reign, as well as condemnations by later writers, it appears that Offa might have been one of the most prolific kinslayers thus far in our story. And let's be real about this. We hear that Aethelbald was running around with nuns by the mid-740s. Offa took the throne about a decade later, and there aren't any records indicating that Aethelbald adopted celibacy at any point in his life. So when Offa took the throne, if he was giving the side-eye to Aethelbald's heirs, they weren't full-grown adults. Rather, they were likely babies, kids, and maybe teens. And the complaints regarding his brutal attention to his line succession don't mention any particular start or end dates. Meaning that if he was hunting down these Aethelings, which it does sound like he was, he could well have been hunting down kids, depending on how early he started. It's grim stuff. And honestly, I doubt he was acting alone. Mercian queens typically held a great deal of power, and Queen Chinnathrith was powerful even for a Mercian queen. We're told that she was heavily involved in rule. We see her regularly witnessing charters as the queen of the Mercians, and coins were even minted in her name. Chinnathrith was so powerful that at one point Alcuin, who was apparently rather grumpy at her lack of responses, suggested that the reason why she wasn't reading his letters was because she was too busy with the king's business. Chinnathrith was a mover and shaker in mercy and politics, and she had just as much motivation to ensure her children inherited the throne as Offa did. So, it looks like Offa was doing whatever was necessary to ensure his son would inherit the kingdom. And Chinnathrith might have been planning right along with him. And the fact that we don't read of him being overthrown or murdered 
shows you exactly how powerful this Mercian king must have been. I mean, this was a rather troubling development in Mercian politics, right? I mean, that seems obvious. Pretty much everybody agrees that kinslaying is bad. But the funny thing is, when you break it down, the view on kinslaying actually kind of gets a bit weird. Murder is murder. It's always bad. But for some reason, murdering a family member is super duper bad. We treat it as self-evident. But is it? Is Offa killing a cousin any worse than him killing some other Mercian? And if it is, what makes it all that different? It's hard to say where all this comes from, and it could just be from the concept of family and tribalism. But one thing I'd like to suggest is that we consider it from the perspective of what's going on in the English political structure. We have a system that's designed ostensibly to keep the peace. And in general, it works. The Ware Guild provides a significant deterrent for murder because hardly anyone can afford it. Not only that, but it supports the power structure because if you kill someone, you have to pay both the family of the victim, but you also have to pay the king for violating his peace. And if that's not enough to keep you from going around murdering people, there's also the age-old cultural emphasis on blood feuds. If you kill someone, the victim's family could well come along and kill you. But here's the thing. What happens when the king is killing family members? He has incredible amounts of wealth, so he doesn't need to worry about the wear guild. And even if he was forced to pay it, he'd end up giving half of the penalty to himself. And depending on whether or not he was seen as the head of the family and the rightful claimant to the wear guild, he might end up paying the other half to himself as well. Not only that, but blood feuds get a bit confusing when you're dealing with kinslaying. You know? Who's honor bound to seek retribution? Where are the family lines drawn? What part of the family is the victim's side, and what part is the killer's side? It gets really weird, and probably makes blood feuds difficult, if not impossible. So, while there are all sorts of reasons for the treatment of kinslaying as a super sin, it is interesting to think about it in terms of how it affects the king's peace. And how, due to his position, Offa was in a unique position of facing relatively little consequence for kinslaying. Really, his biggest concern was probably the possibility of another civil war, or an outraged and particularly stabby bodyguard. So, his position and power probably enabled him to behave like the bloodthirsty kinslayer that we read hints of in later records and letters. But, in addition to probably killing even more illegitimate heirs than the Lannisters, there's another indication of his power that I hinted at last week. When we ended the last episode, I mentioned the growing conflict between the Welsh kingdoms and Mercia. There was a period of relative peace, or at least a period of silence in the record regarding conflict. But here in the late 70s and early 80s, things seem to be sparking up again. And somewhere during that period, we have the possible construction of one of the wonders of the medieval world, Offa's Dyke. Now, right from the outset, I should tell you that not everyone agrees that Offa constructed this dike. King Alfred the Great's biographer, Asser, says that Offa built Offa's dike. That's why it's called Offa's dike. Quote, Offa had a great dike built between Wales and Mercia from sea to sea. End quote. Fair enough. However, Asser was writing about a hundred years after Offa's reign, and there have been some recent archaeological carbon dating investigations that have suggested that some portions of the dike 
might be much older, perhaps hundreds of years older. The jury is far from out, and the results aren't undisputed, and only some sections of the dike have been looked at, leaving large sections in question, even if the dating is correct. But it would be irresponsible if I didn't mention that it's being looked into. However, most scholars agree that Offa was the one who built the dike. So right now, we might as well stick with Asser until those investigations provide something more certain. So to start with, what are we talking about here? I mean, only the most hardcore Middle Ages fans will likely have a firm image in their mind's eye of what Offa's dike was. Ultimately, Offa's dike was an enormous earthen barrier that was up to 8 feet tall and 65 feet wide, with a ditch on the Welsh side. The ditch itself makes the embankment about 25 feet tall, and it's also quite steep. The remains of it can still be seen today over broken and mountainous terrain. The dike roughly follows the border between modern-day England and Wales, though David Hill's investigations have suggested that it might have just covered a distance of roughly over 100 kilometers along the border of Powys, so roughly along the middle portion of the border between modern-day England and Wales. Though, that is not universally accepted, and it is dramatically shorter than Asser's description. Some scholars argue that it went as far south as Sedbury Cliffs in Gloucestershire. And while most agree that it didn't reach the sea to the north, as Asser suggested, it cannot be denied that it was a significantly large project. The shortest estimates of its size place it at around the same length as Hadrian's Wall. And many scholars suggest that it was about 50% longer. That is an amazingly huge project. And Offa's Dyke is described by many scholars, I think rightly, as the most impressive monument of this type ever constructed by a known European king. Scholars have described it as, quote, the longest and from an engineering point of view, the most demanding earthenwork known to European history, end quote. It's part of the reason why Offa is often compared to Roman rulers like Hadrian and Antoninus Pius. And honestly, I'm a little bit more impressed by Offa because Hadrian had the resources of an entire empire to construct his wall. Offa, even if he had the support of other kingdoms in Britain, had significantly less. It's stunning, especially when you consider how many people they would have needed to build it. It's tough to determine exactly how many workers would have been needed because we don't know how long they took in building it. But even if he had been building it for the entire length of his reign, he probably couldn't have done it with less than 5,000 workers. Some scholars have suggested that as many as 125,000 people would have been involved in building the dike, but that would assume a quick construction. And chances are, we are probably looking at at least tens of thousands of laborers. But even if we took the most conservative estimate of 5,000 people, that's a lot. And maybe Offa had creative ways of finding able-bodied laborers. Given how Offa's predecessor, King Aethelbald, agreed that the clergy would only be required to work on bridges and fortresses, and how the dike could possibly be seen as a fortress of a sort, I do wonder if monks were conscripted. But whatever the case, this was a massive undertaking. Offa would have needed not just political power and resources to recruit workers, but he would also need to keep them supplied, housed, and possibly protected from attack. It was a good thing he had all that coinage. And this project shows off not just Offa's wealth, but also his power and organizational ability. It's a hell of a thing. 
but why build it? The predominant theory is that it was probably built in the second half of Offa's reign. After all, it was only in his later years that Offa's ascendancy was assured and complete, and it's doubtful that he could have spared the attention and wealth necessary to build the dike while also expanding his kingdom and probably killing every eighthling he could find to ensure that his son would inherit the throne. Also, chances are that it was built during a period of peace, since building it in wartime would have been dodgy to say the least. Looking at the record, there was a period of peace between Offa and the Welsh from 760 to 778, so shortly before the period we are right now. So maybe it was built then. Or perhaps it was built during the period of peace between Mercy and Wales from 784 to 796, so right around this point in the story. And it was during that later period where it was also dealing with Charlemagne. Perhaps not on equal terms, but still on pretty good terms for a European king talking to frickin' Charlemagne. So he certainly would have had the capability by that point in his reign. Now, why build the dike? Well, that's a subject of enormous debate. If David Hill is right, it might have been to deal with a powerful and bellicose poes. Don't forget that there wasn't a Wales at this point, but rather multiple kingdoms, just like there are in the East. And Poes, at this point, does seem to have been getting pretty strong, and we do see a retreat from English settlements in the West that might have been due to increased hostility, as the Welsh annals do reflect an increased level of conflict between the Welsh and the English kingdoms. So, if Poes was a problem, this might have been a solution to the issue. Sort of. The current thinking is that the way the dike was constructed really wouldn't have prevented a large-scale invasion. We're not talking about a huge wall that was garrisoned, like Hadrian's Wall. But it would have been a solid boundary nonetheless, and it would have stopped easy transport across the border. And that would have slowed small-scale raids, cattle rustlers, and other war bands. Because carts, horses, and stolen cattle would have found it incredibly hard to move across the 25-foot steep embankment. So the thought is that this was likely to prevent rapid movement across the border, rather than to repel a large-scale invasion. Basically, it was probably to demarcate a border, and also to prevent raiders and bandits from quick access across that border. But the takeaway is that sometime around this point, Mercia's border was getting a bit more secure. And also, Offa was incredibly powerful. And things were looking up for Offa not just in the west, but also towards the south as well. By 784, Aelmund ruled as the king of Kent, but rule might be a bit of an overstatement, since the kingdom was still being dominated by Mercia. That's great news for Offa. Though, as powerful as King Offa was becoming, Canterbury was still a thorn in his side, largely due to his growing feud with Archbishop Jambert. And I suppose that makes sense. Offa had been throwing his weight around in the south. He'd almost certainly been killing family members in order to ensure that his line would inherit the throne. And generally, he hadn't been all that friendly with Kent or her neighbors. And meanwhile, the archbishop was beginning to behave a bit like a rival monarch in some respects. Jambert and Offa had plenty of reasons to dislike each other. But unlike most unhappy couples, the two men could not use the silent treatment because Offa was looking to fully cement his son's succession. The thing is, that King Offa was keeping up on world politics. 
and the Frankish kings had an amazing twist on kingship. They weren't just ruling because of their blood. They were getting consecrated, which meant that they were making their rule ordained by God. It was basically like tying your lineage to Woden, except with that whole awkward thing of coming up with a family tree. And when you consecrate your successor, that gives them a serious leg up over any potential rivals. Afa, who had spent far too long up to his elbows in the blood of distant cousins, probably didn't want all of that to be for nothing. And so we hear of his plans to have his son, Egfrith, consecrated. It's a pretty smart move. And if Afa was Charlemagne, he would have just had the Pope do it. However, Afa was not Charlemagne. He needed someone powerful and respected in the church, but he also needed someone who, you know, he could get a hold of. And that meant he needed Archbishop Jambert. I mean, it really wouldn't carry all that much weight if Deacon Unferth did the consecration, right? Unfortunately, that's where things really started to go wrong. Offa wasn't on good terms with Kent at the best of times. And on top of that, it was probably already widely known how far he'd been going to ensure that Egfrith would inherit. So Jambert was not exactly eager to agree to Offa's request. Not only that, but the archbishop was powerful and apparently not easily intimidated. Don't forget that he wasn't even minting his own coins. So while Offa might have been trying to turn the screws on this turbulent priest, it doesn't look like it was going all that well. And right at about this point, someone wrote a letter. We don't know who wrote it. We also don't know exactly what it said because we don't have a copy of it. But before you roll your eyes, remember what I said about mystery and how it's fun? Stick with me. So the letter arrives at the court of Charlemagne. And then, shortly thereafter, envoys from King Offa of Mercia arrive, and they say that the letter is nothing but a collection of lies and rumors put out by Offa's enemies. After that, both Offa and Charlemagne sent more envoys to Rome to basically tell the Pope the same thing. Sort of like, oh my god, your holiness, everybody's lying about us. You and I, were still friends, I swear it. Charlemagne even sent his own letter to Pope Hadrian, explaining the situation and denouncing the whole thing. So what was such a big deal with this letter that it prompted that response from Offa and Charlemagne? Well, thankfully, Pope Hadrian likes to include recaps in his letters. So when he wrote back to Charlemagne, we get hints of what happened and what Charlemagne's response was. The Pope says that he got Charlemagne's letter, quote, relating that Offa, king of the people of the Angles, had sent your royal excellence a document to show that some enemies of yours and his would be informing our apostolic person that the same King Offa was suggesting to you that you ought to evict us from the Holy See, and that you should establish another rector there from among your own people, end quote. Pope Hadrian was probably a very nice guy, but he wasn't a very good storyteller. So let me interpret that riveting account for you. What he's saying is that Charlemagne wrote to him saying that some nebulous enemies of Offa and Charlemagne's were spreading rumors that Offa was trying to convince Charlemagne to depose the Pope and install a Frank in the Vatican. So that's a big deal. And first of all, this is where we start to get a sense of how important Offa was. He was dealing with Charlemagne, and this clearly wasn't their first interaction. Not only that, but he was considered big enough that rumors of him pressuring Charlemagne to oust the Pope ran the risk of actually being believed. So that's kind of awesome for Offa. 
he's turning into a mover and shaker in European politics. So well done, dude. On the other hand, yikes. You could see why Offa was eager to get his envoys to Charlemagne's court before any of those rumors took hold, right? And why he was strenuously saying, lies, it's all damn lies. If the allegations were believed, he could find himself in a serious amount of trouble. Hell, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Charlemagne might want to prove his innocence by attacking Mercia. There are all sorts of ways this could end really badly for Offa. Though, when I look at all the facts, I'm pretty sure I saw this episode of the OC. Hadrian, did you hear that Offa and I were planning on uninviting you from the party? Because it isn't true. It was probably Jenny who was spreading that rumor, and you know how he is. And I think he's putting on weight. You know, it's all kind of a bit childish. But this really was a big deal, and Offa wasn't the only one who was freaked out. You can practically hear Pope Hadrian's shaking knees in his letter to Charlemagne. And here's why the Pope was so worried. Things weren't exactly super stable in the papacy. The Lombards were only recently knocked out of power, and their relationship with the papacy was getting a bit tense towards the end. And now Charlemagne was the most powerful leader that Europe had seen for centuries. And in addition to holding what would become France and huge portions of what would become Germany, he also held most of Italy. If he wanted the Pope gone, there wouldn't be all that much that Hadrian could do about it. And it was clear that he was no pussycat. He had defeated enemies in battle, and as for intrigue, his own brother died in rather strange circumstances. So that rumor would have been a bit worrying. However, in Hadrian's letter, he does relate how Charlemagne denounced the rumors, assured him that Offa had done no such thing, and that the whole situation was just incredible. So that likely was a bit of a relief. But the Pope still sounded a little bit freaked out. So that's the story of the letter, where we both lack a letter and we don't know who sent the letter. It's heavily debated, and scholars of this period have plenty of thoughts on what this exchange tells us about Offa's power on the continent, and the stature of the papacy, and all manner of other things. But for me, the big question is who was spreading the rumors? The theory that I think has the most credibility is that it was Archbishop Jambert. He had motive, and given his position, he would have been the most likely to think of going the religious route to attack Offa. But... It's one of those things we might never know. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. 